Hi, and welcome to the Fourth U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. I am so excited to get back to our regular podcasting after a bit of a summer break, uh, and I'm really particularly excited about this first podcast of our new church year. And I am so excited to get to down, sit down with Stephen Kersey, who is a journalist and author of a new book, The Quiet Zone. Stephen, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ember. My name is Stephen Percy. I'm actually talking to you right now from the quiet zone. I'm in West Virginia, just outside of the town of Greenbank, which is where the book is set. I've been a professional journalist for the past 15 years or so. I grew up in Connecticut, uh, ended up going to Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, studying philosophy, and then was a journalist back in Connecticut for a newspaper, community newspaper, Lived in New York City doing journalism, went abroad to Cambodia and Brazil, also doing journalism, came back to New York City to do a journalism fellowship at Columbia University. And that kind of led into me digging into writing this book about this area of the United States where by state and federal laws, there's no cell service and there's also restrictions on other kinds of wireless technology. And the reason I was so interested in it is because I myself have not owned a cell phone in more than a decade. And in this world where we're surrounded by cell service, where pretty much everybody, I think it's like 97% of all Americans have cell phones now, most of them are smartphones. Like where does somebody like me who wants to live a, more, live a little more disconnected fit in? And that brought me to the quiet zone. As we talked about, as we were preparing for this podcast, we had paths crossed just by a few years uh, difference in Grand Rapids there. But so linking that to cell phones, I think about the fact that it was like my first year of, of college in 2006 that um, my dad got me, he upgraded my like just generic little flip phone and upgraded it to an iPhone. Um, it was like, the, or maybe not the first year, but it was right as soon as the iPhones came out. Like I, I got the upgrade to the, to the iPhone and had to have the coolest fancy new technology. And everybody was like, do you really need all that in a phone? Uh, <laughs> it seems like so long ago, you know, this, uh, the smartphone revolution just has become ingrained into life now. I got my first phone in 2005. It was soon after I graduated from Calvin is when I came back to Connecticut and started working at a, a weekly newspaper there because it was just expected. You've got to have a phone if you want to have a job. And also because, you know, I was, I'd moved back. I was living with my, my parents' house for a couple months before I got my own apartment. I wasn't going to get a landline. It's like, you just don't, get a landline. You get a cell phone instead. Like who has landlines anymore? I don't think my parents even own a landline. They've disconnected it. They just have their own cell phones now. But I was kind of like in that in-between area where people didn't, everybody, everybody didn't quite have iPhone or sorry, iPhones or smartphones yet. And then I went to Cambodia in 2007 and it was especially more a couple steps back with nobody having smartphones. And then I threw away that first and last flip phone in 2009. So like I'll admit that it was probably a little bit easier for me to break away from my cell phone because I didn't have a smartphone, which I think makes it all the more harder to break away. And the, the addictive power of it is, is all the more stronger when you have all those apps and that glowing screen. Uh, mentioning Cambodia, having lived in Vietnam for a little while, one of the first things I noticed was that like literally everybody had a smartphone. Like uh, from what I've gathered, like you know, the, the government over there has really made it like 
something that they wanted to make sure that people had access to uh, affordable and cheap smartphones. Uh, and, but I mean, gosh, you'd, you'd, um, you'd go to the market and be just, you know, the person who's, you know, carrying in the, the eggs on the, on the baskets on their shoulder. And she had a, like as nice of a, of a smartphone as I did. <laughs> it it kind of blew my mind at first. It's a fact that today worldwide, more people have smartphones than have running water. If that's even possible. It's like, it's, it's like more than water to live. We need to have a smartphone. We need to be always connected as you saw there in Vietnam. And as I saw increasingly in Cambodia as well, these countries that are a bit behind the United States, like economically or developmentally, they've leapfrogged really over wired telephone service. So you'd have like, you know, a house off the grid where they wouldn't be having wired telephones. They probably wouldn't even have electricity. And yet they had cell service. They had a smartphone. I, thought, I will say that uh, I do miss, uh, Vietnam seemed to have more reliable uh, networks. Like I could be in the middle of nowhere uh, and have the cell phone signal. Whereas I feel like I, I go down the wrong street here in uh, New York City, New Jersey area, and suddenly my, my signal just completely fails on me. I'm not yeah. quite sure. Maybe credit to the tall buildings as well, which maybe momentarily. Uh, that's probably a good point. But so no cell phone for, for so long, like you're, you're still on the quest of, of no cell phone? That's right. Yeah. I have not had a cell phone since 2009, never had a smartphone. And initially it was a decision out of frugality. I would, I was living in Cambodia. I was kind of a struggling, you know, journalist living on a shoestring. I came back to the United States and I was actually interning and then got a full-time job at the Christian Science Monitor in Boston. And I, I, but I didn't really know how long I would be back in the U.S. I knew I wanted to go back abroad and do more journalism work, but I didn't want to invest in like, uh, you know, an expensive iPhone. I didn't want to lock myself into like a one year or two year long data plan as they would making you do, at least back then when you would sign up for one at the Apple store. So it was a, a matter of like saving some dollars. And then it kind of evolved into this sociological experiment of like, okay, what's it like now to live without a cell phone or a smartphone? And especially as everybody started telling me to get a cell phone, I, I kind of dug in my heels. I remember like my boss, my edit, editor at the monitor saying, get a cell phone and get on Facebook. Essentially, if you want to keep working here, get on social media and start carrying a cell phone so we can reach you all the time. Um, my mother would you know, say, why can't you get a cell phone like your sisters do so that I, I stop worrying about you when you go out and about or go on these long bicycle rides or out running or whatever. Um, and friends would get after me and say, Steve, how am I supposed to get in touch with you if you don't have a cell phone? Like it's, and I found it incredible that all of a sudden, just like a couple of years, there was this revolution in thinking. You know, it was back in 2005, before I had a cell phone, there was no expectation that we would all always be available all the time. And yet all of a sudden here it was just five years later and there was that expectation. And so this decision of frugality evolved into an experiment to see if I could live without a cell phone, which has since morphed into this kind of ideological position of being like, I don't think my life is any worse for not having a smartphone or a cell phone. And I think there's plenty of reasons to believe that it's better given all the research that has come out about the negative side of being constantly connected and always being available to the world via your device. And given how addictive these devices are and the influence that has on our lives in many negative ways. Right, so I feel like the first question I have to ask is, did you give in and get a landline then? No, 
no, no landline. So I, I, so I just have to get creative. So, um, you know, we're talking right now over, over Zoom via Wi-Fi. So like I'm on Wi-Fi, I don't have anything against that. I'm using a, a laptop. I, I'm not a Luddite. I have an iPod, so I can use that for listening to podcasts or music in my car. If I'm on Wi-Fi, I can use it a lot like any other device. You know, I have Google Voice. Google Voice is a program that gives you a free phone number. And incredibly, I could be in Brazil or Cambodia, and I could use that free phone number to call anywhere in the United States for free. Like there's anything like I was saving money and in a, in a real ingenious way, I thought like saving a lot of money by getting these workarounds. I use Skype. It just meant that when I was away from Wi-Fi or away from the internet, I was temporarily offline and disconnected. It created these like pockets in my life where I would have a break from it all. And I still believe that's a valuable thing to have in my life. And I know it, especially because as soon as I'm in a place where I know that I have Wi-Fi, like I'm back on my devices, I'm back checking it. And my wife is also always getting after me about that. She's like, you're addicted just like everybody else. And like, you're right, I am. And that's why I can't have a smartphone, why I don't want to have a smartphone, because I know I would be abusing it, uh, you know, when I'm going for a hike or out and about with my family. The way you named how, like, so many of these uh, contracts, you know, like, they, to get an iPhone at the time. And I, I mean, I think for the most part, a lot of the smartphones in the United States are still that same thing, is that you have to, like, you, you feel like you're getting it for free, but what you're getting is locked into like having this phone and then upgrading to the next one and upgrading to the next one. That was the, the another really interesting thing about like moving abroad was that people mostly bought their phones. Uh, usually, you know, if they wanted an expensive phone, then they could get it, but they could find one for a little bit cheaper. Uh, but, and then they would just get a SIM card and have the, have the data on it. And like, it was, it was so different than this relationship in the United States that we have where it's like, you're locked into having this carrier and you have to be with them and you'll, they'll, they'll give you free upgrades to the next one and to the next one and to the next but one. It reminds me how it came out a couple of years ago or, or whatever that Apple would actually make your devices slower. As soon as they came out with a new version of the iPhone or whatever, all of a sudden your old iPhone would start, the battery power would get sucked down really fast and the apps wouldn't download. Like they, they really have a lot of tricks to get you to stay connected as much as possible to get the next best thing that's always coming out. Right. My, my dad gave my sons uh, like an old iPad and he's done it twice now in his life because basically after a time they pretty much become useless. Like there's only so many apps you can download because they've, they keep upgrading the operating system and upgrading it. And then the old stuff, even if you, you know, put up with everything slowing down, eventually it also becomes useless in the sense that like, you can't get the upgrades. You can't use the apps that you need. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they basically, they loop you into this uh, um, artificial scarcity, um, I think is the, the word. Yeah, you know, and I think the challenge for us is, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but I think the challenge for us is, okay, fine. If you want to be that way, then I just won't have those apps. I'll just like stay behind a little bit. And that's kind of like what it's like here in Green Bank a little bit, where I am in this quiet zone. Like, Internet's really slow. There's no cell service. Like by necessity, they're forced to let go of having constant connectivity or having a device that would work like the absolute best that Apple wants you to have it be working. Right, yeah. So, so Green Bank, or as my brain keeps reverting to calling it Green Hill, um, the, the Sonic fan in me, uh, 
how did you hear about Green Bank? Like, even as somebody who had researched a lot about like digital issues, I, I can't say that it it popped up in, in a lot of my searches. So how did you hear about it and come to want to spend so much time there and research so much? In 2017, I was at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism taking a class on book writing. I initially went into the class thinking, I want to write a book about cell phones in my own life and not having one. And kind of researching that, I just did a simple Google search for places in the United States without soul service, wondering, well, maybe there's other people out there like me. Maybe I'm not as alone as I think I am. And up pops, as a result, Green Bank the quietest town in America. I started reading about it and it sounded amazing and like paradise, this place where smartphones were supposedly banned and Wi-Fi was supposedly outlawed and there was no cell service and everybody lived a more disconnected life. Like a lot of the stories around this place just painted as this utopic vision of what the world used to be. Um, within weeks, I was here. <laughs> that was in March of 2017. And the reason for that radio quietude here is because of our nation's very first federal radio astronomy observatory, which was established here in Green Bay in 1956. So radio astronomy measures radio waves coming in from the cosmos from millions of light years away. Measuring those radio waves allows you to discern what the universe looks like. And in the same way that you have to have, you know, an optical telescope in a really dark place, because you don't want to have light pollution, you need to have a radio telescope in a really quiet place and away from all that radio pollution, which back in the 50s was caused by cars, spark plugs in a car or different kinds of machinery or just radio service or television signals. And this area of Appalachia, this swath of quiet was deemed to be the quietest place perhaps on the East Coast for hosting this astronomy observatory. So it's, it's quiet, by default, it's super remote. It's only about today, only about 8,000 people living in a Rhode Island sized county, which is surrounded by a ring of, of mountains, essentially that block out the outside world's radio signals and also a lot of the outside world's people and, and economy. So it's a, it's a quiet place by default and then it's stayed quiet by state and federal laws. That same year the observatory was established in 1956, West Virginia's Congress, or legislature passed a law called the West Virginia Radio Astronomy Zoning Act, which created a $50 daily fine for anybody who should operate any electronics that would interfere with the telescopes within this 10 mile radius of the observatory. And then two years later in 1958, US Congress, incredibly, given that US Congress can't seem to agree on anything today, passed the National Radio Quiet Zone which created this 13,000 square mile area, that's the size of Connecticut and Massachusetts combined, where all cell service and wireless signals are restricted and have to be approved by the Quiet Zone Administrator, who is based out of the, quiet, the, uh, the Green Bank Observatory, here where I am. So, so, so it's this incredibly quiet place and, and, and it's also a real contrast of, you know, beautiful, huge 500 foot tall telescopes in the middle of Appalachia, surrounded by woods, surrounded by uh, a, a place that's somewhat poor, that's a bit, you know, struggles a bit with, with poverty and with lacking educational opportunities. And so here you have this kind of like this beacon of science in remote Appalachia. And it's a contrast there that's really 
kind of magical. And it's a juxtaposition that's really rich for a journalist. And it made it super fascinating for me when I first came in here. That was in March, 2017. And then over the next three years, I spent about four months on the ground here in the Green Bank area, getting to know the place and for this book that just came out last month. Yes. It's interesting though, to me that, um, so, you know, you found out about it by searching about it. So it is a not connected place that uh, seems to have lots of uh, media interest at the same time. So it's connected by all of these people that are so interested uh, in, in what's going on there. That's an understatement. So when I first came here in 2017, there was about 30 to 30 to 40 media visitors every year. So people from around the country and around the world, international media as well, would come into Green Bank to interview the locals about, you know, what's it like to not have a cell phone or what's it like to not have cell service and to videotape the telescopes against this background of, you know, hay, hay fields and, and cows in the background grazing. It's a real beautiful imagery. Um, and that was amid more than like 100 articles a year that were coming out, out about this place. There's some irony, like you just pointed out, to the fact that the quietest place in America probably has the most media articles about it per capita in all of West Virginia, maybe if not the United States of America. Right, I was going to say West Virginia doesn't manage to get uh, a lot of a lot of articles written about it ever. But as as so as somebody with a uh, family that uh, came from that um, the mountainous regions of Pennsylvania, not too far uh, north of there. Um, uh, a lot of the characters and a lot of the like, life of the book sounded familiar, like these, these stories of the interpersonal squabbles going on and between the um, farmers. But what, one of the things that I found interesting was all of the folks who uh, kind of gravitated there as like, this is, I mean, I suppose in a sense, you, you are also one of the folks that gravitated there as a, this is what I'm looking for, for like, this is can, you know, um, confirming everything I stand for. I need to be here to be free of, of cell phones. But there's lots of people that, uh, as you share in the book, you know, are, are a bit more drastic in that relationship with wanting to be moved away from technology. Yeah. So initially I came being super interested in the Astronomy Observatory and then kind of branching out into the community, I became, became fascinated with all the people and groups that have been drawn to the quiet over the past half century. There's a real sense of the quiet here having a magnetizing force, pulling people in who are looking to get away from it all. Initially you had the radio astronomers, but then around the same time you had the US military. And in a nearby town called Sugar Grove here in West Virginia, they established a fairly top secret radio communications installation where now to this day, the National Security Agency, the NSA, operates its own collection of about a half dozen radio antennas, which are secretly swooping in millions of phone calls and emails and contact events every single hour. And a lot of what we know about that was revealed by Edward Snowden in the leaks that came out around 2010, 2011 um, over in Sugar Grove. Like the, the, the amount of spy work they're doing is only possible because it's in a quiet zone. Just like the astronomers for them to hear the sounds of the universe, they need to be in a quiet place. For the NSA to hear all the noise elsewhere, they need to be in a quiet place. Again, there's more irony in like, they're measuring the noise elsewhere. Like there's like a recognition by the US military, by the NSA itself, that for them to spy on, like they can only do the work because we're making all that noise in the rest of America and the rest of the world. 
soon after the, the hippies, sorry, the, the astronomers and spy came a, a wave of back to the landers and hippies in the 60s and 70s and cavers as well. There's a really rich caving uh, uh, community here in, in the Green Bank area. Some of the largest caves in the United States are, are found here that kind of riddle the land, which also imbues the area with some, some mystery and conspiracy with what's connected between those caves and what the government might want to do with those caves and, uh, uh, and conspiracies about Green Bank and Sugar Grove and this large luxury hotel just in the southern end of the, of the, uh, of the quiet zone being connected. That hotel is called the Greenbrier. And in reality, in the late 50s, the U.S. government built a massive underground bunker capable of holding 1,200 legislators in case of a nuclear holocaust attack on Washington, D.C. They were all going to take refuge, essentially, in the quiet zone. So, so you have the hippies and the backlanders coming in the cavers in the 60s and 70s, so much so that they pushed up the local population by about 15% in the county, which is notable because there's only about 8,000 people here in the entire county. It's the most sparsely populated county in like one of the most sparsely populated counties east of the Mississippi River. So those cavers and back to landers have really influenced the culture here. One of the more notable among them was a guy named Patch Adams. Uh, Hunter Patch Adams is his first name. Um, made famous by the 1998 movie Patch Adams starring Robin Williams. That movie ends with this line about how he's creating a free rural hospital, hospital uh, to serve Appalachians which is supposed to be here in Pocahontas County in the quiet zone. Um, we can talk more about him if you want and about whether or not, <laughs> without that well, I mean, actually there. No, definitely. That, that is a, that is an intriguing direction to take it because uh, my, my knowledge of Patch Adams was that I, I was a kid in the nineties who watched that movie, um, you know, like that, that, and I just like, I didn't really remember the end line too much, but I was just like, Oh, you know, he's running that, that. And so like, when you introduce him in the book and I'm like, Oh, cool. I like, I'm interested in finding out what, what, like what, how that all ended up going. And then you get into it. I'm like, Oh, so like a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a guy who says he's doing something that's not actually happening. Like I'm reticent to, to do any, say any libelous words <laughs> about, about him. Like you can read the book and draw your own conclusions, but it was this, there is no hospital for context for listeners. And he has never treated a single person here in Pocahontas County, despite having raised millions and millions of dollars. That's a fact by looking at his tax returns as I did. And by his confirmation, he told me he's raised at least 15, 20 million dollars over the past 40 years since he's been promising to build a hospital. And yet he's never built a hospital in there. His facility here is fairly rustic and absolutely incapable of providing any real hospital medical services. Um, the Patch Adams angle was, it was part of this idea of, not idea, but part of this initial facade around this place seeing like such a utopia. It seems so perfect. There's no cell service. There's radio astronomers and super smart scientists getting along with farmers in Appalachia and bringing in this cutting edge science to a place that's, that really could use more investment in the education system. And then you have Patch Adams running a free rural hospital. And then you stay here longer and you start digging behind those layers and you realize, hang on, there is a lot of Wi-Fi in the quiet zone. The guy right across the street from the observatory has Wi-Fi. Hang on, everybody seems to be carrying cell phones and smartphones. They're not banned by any means. And then hang on, there is no hospital run by Patch Adams. He's been raising millions and millions of dollars for I don't know what, but he hasn't provided any healthcare actually 
here in the area. And it was this sense of like, you know, biting the apple and gaining real knowledge about what this paradise really is. But also then finding out about the, the, the white supremacist connections um, yeah. uh, underneath there too. Um, a couple of years was- after Patch Adams came, just like four to five years later, a very notorious neo-Nazi leader named William Pierce arrived. He had been living in Washington, D.C., and he was attracted to coming out here because he wanted to get away from it all, too. He wanted to go to a super quiet place, which basically meant land was cheap. He could buy a 400-acre mountainside for just like $75,000 or so. 400 acres and a mountain, only $75,000 back in 1984. He could get away from law enforcement. He could get away from minorities who he didn't like. He could pursue his own quirky ideas and live in his own paranoid mind about everybody who's coming out to get him there on his remote mountainside here in the quiet zone. More recently, to complete this kind of like circle of all the groups and people who have been fleeing into the quiet zone, trying to find a a refuge, you have people who believe they're made physically ill to the point of severe sickness and even death by cell signals and by Wi-Fi. They have a fairly new disease called electromagnetic hypersensitivity, also EHS. Um, the disease, there was a character in the, in the Netflix series called Better Call Saul, Chuck McGill, if any of you have seen that, where he has this thing. He wraps himself in like a, a plastic or a, a metal, like aluminum foil blanket. And that kind of helps him block out the radio signals all around him. He keeps all the breakers off in his house. He's basically disconnected from the grid. Hundreds of him, people like him have fled here to Green Bank from around the world because they believe it's like their last refuge, their last quiet refuge in a noisy world where they can get away from the pain. Things are not, you know, so in the same vein of things are not what they seem with, you know, spies, with the neo-Nazis, with all of these different, um, you know, kind of strange things going on behind the scenes. So basically like these news articles regularly portray it as uh, like, the land without any Wi-Fi or cell phones. And then, you know, it just, it turns out that as soon as the, the journalists look the other way, people are, you know, pulling out their phones and hopping on their Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, there's a real sense of that. It reminds me of a time I was at a local general store. It's called Trent's. You know, in a place without cell service, these local general stores really have like a community hub kind of feel where you come in and you trade gossip and you just kind of visit with people. And I was there and I saw... Uh, a young man, his name is Matthias, and his dad, Daniel. His dad is actually a minister. He's a, a brethren minister uh, in the local area. And his son had already told me that they didn't have Wi-Fi at their house. So I kind of pinned him down. I was like, hey, so you guys still don't have Wi-Fi, right? I'm like, yep, no Wi-Fi at our house. I'm like, oh, really? Because I've, I've been hearing that more and more people actually do have Wi-Fi. And they kind of look at each other and they kind of grin a little sheepishly. And then the father is like, actually, we do have Wi-Fi. I'm like laughing. I'm like, I can't believe this. Like a man of God has lied to me. Isn't, you know, isn't that one of the 10 commandments not to lie? And uh, I'm like, why didn't you want to tell me? Why are you, why are you trying to hide it? And he says, well, you know, the observatory is a great thing for the community, provides a lot of jobs, but when the fast lane is going 75 miles per hour, that's the lane you have to be in. Like even here in the quiet zone with Wi-Fi at least, there's a sense of everybody else has it. It's, a, it's an asset that I have to provide for my family. And I, I just can't not have it. You're currently in the quiet zone. So A, something uh, must be, be appealing about it because you, you went back even after the book is written. Uh, lots, of, lots of you know folks choose to write about something and then never follow up on it. Um, yeah, I felt a real attachment to this place and a real 
I, I'm incredibly thankful to the community for opening up to me. You know, people like Daniel and, and others who I'm reconnecting with now, they shared so many stories with me. And the least I can do is say, hey, thanks for that. Here's what I wrote about your community. I'd love to hear what you think. You're the experts about this place. Did I get anything wrong? Is there anything else I could have said? Like it's a sense of like me being accountable to this place. Right. I mean, I, that, that to me, that's impressive because that is, is you know, not often the, the, the approach that a lot of folks take, especially with like, you know, um, poorer areas of like the United States where it's, you know, basically poverty tourism. They go in, they make a vlog or they write about it. And then it's um, interesting you use that phrase because uh, a local man named Bob Sheets, he lives actually like right next to the observatory. He's standing in his yard and you can see the telescopes kind of like popping above the trees and almost like looming over his yard. And he used the word disconnectivity porn to describe a lot of the articles around this place. You know, poverty porn is when a journalist comes in and they just talk to poor people and then leave and paint this one-sided portrait of what the area is all about and how the people there live. And for him and a lot of other locals, there's this feeling of it's disconnectivity porn. It's journalists coming in and painting a very one-sided portrait of how these people, how can they just be so strange and weird to not have Wi-Fi or cell service or smartphones when they actually do have a lot of those things around the area. And so there's, like, there's a bit of resentment and I wanted to make sure I was acknowledging that that happens. Mm. Probably acknowledging as well that like I'm an outsider and I may be falling into some outsider tropes, even though I'm trying my hardest not to. But sometimes it just, you know, those are in our minds and, and I'm sure they're kind of like woven into my own way of like seeing this place too. But also giving him a sense to say, hey, don't do disconnectivity porn, everybody else. And here's a journalist who's doing a little bit more nuanced, complicated portrait of this area. Right. I mean, I really did like that, um, you know, having spent a lot of time researching like digital minimalism for our little digital minimalism journey through Lint thing. Uh, you know, a lot of it just solely focuses on that and like that it's hyper-focused and like that's every, every, all that everything is about. And like, so as I started the book, I'm like, is this going to just be uh, about being disconnected, but then no, it's this rich portrait of, of everything. I think that, you know, um, I, th I think you did justice as somebody with family in, in different kind of areas, uh, but similar Thanks. to there, um, it, it felt, it felt uh, familiar. Um, so I suppose as kind of a, a final wrap up direction to take things. Uh, so this month in our religious education, the theme, uh, we're, we're operating off of themes this year and the theme is embracing possibility. And so to me, that kind of felt appropriate as we talk about um, this place that where things are a little bit different, but then at the same time, it's not, um, you know, we, you, you've realized and discovered that it's not like that we can just simply run away to a place that's different, but that we can still use it as a place to cause us to step back and think about how to do things differently and how you're doing things differently with, uh, with uh, connections. Um, I suppose one of the things I'm curious about with that is uh, like, so do you, you use social media a lot still? Like with, with, the, with, the, iPad, with the iPod connection? Like, do you still use uh, social I, media? I've, I've never been on most social media. Okay? I've never been on Facebook. I just never did it. I was kind of against it from the beginning. Never did Instagram or WhatsApp. I did. So my, I told you my editor at one point said, get a, get a cell phone and get on Facebook. She also said, get on Twitter. And that was the one thing I was willing to do even though I get the sense that Twitter is kind of like the least of all social media when it comes to like having actual influence or participation. But I am on, I do do Twitter. I'll do that over my iPod or over my computer. And 
there's a real sense since the book we started promoting the book and getting the word out about it of like god i'm on this way too much all of a sudden like i really hate myself for it like it's so easy just to get looped into this feeling of like oh what's happening or who's liked my tweet or who's retweeted my tweet and wanting to see, see that there's a real sense since the book came out of like hypocrisy on my own part like here i am saying i don't have a cell phone saying i want to live a more disconnected life urging people as well to like consider their own relationships with their smartphones and their needs to always have them and then here i am like stuck on twitter so much or or even addicted to like my email like like email can really be just as addictive as other social media platforms was just feeling this urge to like refresh it or to check it mm. or to see like what the next pop-up is uh, on your email. And rather than just like setting a time for that, like I, I'm, mm. I, I'm really aware of that hypocrisy and especially having children now, like I have two sons, one is three months, the other is 21 months. He's almost two years old. And he just wants to interact and play with me all the time. And here I am typing on my computer or like refreshing Twitter or my, or my email. And he's kind of like, you know, tapping on me, tapping on me saying, you know, throw the ball or take me for a walk. It's, it's, it's kind of, like I said, it's, it makes me feel like a hypocrite. And that's mm -hmm. probably a good thing. It's like a real check on my own actions. Well, I, I know that you may have badmouthed Twitter there for a second, but, you know, to, I think that Anybody that's spent a while on Twitter knows that Twitter is very important to the people that are on Twitter. It may not be important to the rest of the world. As someone with um, two kids of my own, like, um, and I know my oldest, he was like asking like if he could play Minecraft online. I'm like, we're gonna just keep like the playing to a solo. Like we don't, let's, let's not, and I'm not quite sure that at seven, you're ready for like the, the online interactions with others. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just, it's interesting. So, I mean, um, I was born in 88. And so like we, we got dial up in like late elementary or we got like dial up in early elementary and then like broadband by like middle school. And, you know, I had a Zanga, I had a live journal, I had a MySpace, uh, I had them all. Then got, a, got on Facebook back when you had to have the .edu to, to log on to it because it was only for college students. Uh, and like it's 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 a little bit mind blowing. Like when you when you step back and realize like how much it is everywhere now, um, and at the same time, I think it's also death of individuality on the internet too. That everything has become standardized and formatted through these specific internet experiences. Whereas like back in the late '90s, early 2000s, it was you know even with something as as silly as MySpace, like uh, so many kids of my generation were like using HTML to like code fancy like designs on their page. But now it's like, here's my generic Facebook profile. Everything is exactly the same on all of the profiles. Like it's, it's if, while people feel that it's really expansive, it's really narrowed the internet down a lot. I agree, yeah. There's a great book that I mentioned in my own book, it's called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. And she kind of talks about that a bit, how the internet and especially social media it's framed around this idea of like just the loudest voices in the room getting even more loud with like the retweets and the social media influencers. Like a lot of these platforms, Twitter being the one I know best, are really geared around that. They're almost built just to like have this like loud voice telling everybody else how to think and everybody else kind of falling in line. It's really hard to have a unique voice. And when you do have a, a unique voice or a voice that's different, 
it's, it's rare that you're going to have a lot of followers or a whole lot of likes or retweets. And so there's this feeling of like, okay, nobody cares because you can see exactly, you know, how many people are looking at your tweets all the time. Right. Or that, you know, it often rewards you for being on there more often. Yeah. So like the, the time that when I was using Twitter and it actually like managed to have a lot of followers was when I was literally living on there for like 12 hours a day, like that I would yeah. check like every 10 minutes, I'd be looking, oh, who liked, who retweeted, what did they say? But, you know, when it's like I check in every month um, and suddenly don't losing followers, not, they're not quite as excited. Yeah. I, my, my wife and I are really, we, we, we don't put any pictures of our children on social media. Um, I think if I did, I would probably have a lot more followers because he just doesn't like to retweet or look at cute pictures of kids and like everything that they're doing. Um, but like, that's a sense of like, where like we've drawn a line, like what we're doing on social media, what we're willing to do. And I, 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 because it's my son's choice. It's their choice. Like I, I have to make that choice for them of how they're appearing all these various things. I, I want to add as well that like, even though here in Green Bank, there is Wi-Fi, people do have smartphones. It's still enough of like a disconnect to force people to like take a break and to rethink their devices. Like I spoke with many people who come here and feel like it's kind of like a breath of fresh air. Mm. And that even just goes for my own wife. We, we came here together for like a two week visit over Christmas and, and New Year's one time. And it took her a full week before she stopped instinctively checking her cell phone for updates. Like she knew in her mind, logically, nothing was going to be there. There wasn't going to be a new email or text or anything, but it took her a full week before it finally like clicked in and she stopped just doing that out of habit. Mm. And then she started just leaving it behind. And instead of reaching for a phone, she'd pick up a book. It was this feeling of like breaking free from that a little bit, taking a deep breath and reconnecting with some of the other things that she would like to connect with more. Right. As I think about, um, so with this digital minimalism journey, I, I briefly, um, I don't know, six months is still a pretty long time. I, I had a flip phone and I still have kept it. I might go back. But when I switched from a smartphone to a very basic flip phone um, in February, like that first week, it was still like, oh, what's on here? What's, what can I look at? Like, oh, it's just the time. <laughs> but then now having that practice has, I've, I've brought back the smartphone mainly just uh, due to work limitations and needing to message just a little bit faster as we've um, been heading back somewhat in person and everything, um, wanting to be able to just communicate a little bit faster with kind of pressing stuff. And, but it's, it's having that experience has redefined like my relationship with my phone. Like I'll just leave it in my bag or it'll just be over on a nightstand. It'll just stay there. Like I don't have to have it on me because it's, it's no longer this thing. I've also not like downloaded any of the apps besides um, like, uh, I think like the, the transit app is the big one. Um, but besides that, like uh, it, I've not downloaded all the apps because uh, I don't need that constant connection to Facebook and to everything. Yeah, I, I respect that decision a lot. And for anybody who thinks that it's not such a big deal to live in a quiet zone, I would challenge them, try giving up your phone for a day. Try unplugging your Wi-Fi for just a day and see if you can do it. Try not using your, your laptop for a full day. Like it's going to be like the challenges that you'll find you don't even think about will wake you up to realizing how different life can be here. Just being a little bit disconnected, small things like how am I going to get from point A to B point B when I don't have a cell phone to give me directions. Um, to, I, I told a friend back in New York city once about the quiet zone about green bank. 
And I think he kind of took up the challenge personally in his own life. And he was like, okay, I'm going to leave my cell phone in my apartment for a full month just to prove to myself that I could live there in the quiet zone, that I'm not addicted to my device. And so he kind of like marked out, a, like a, with tape, he marked out a square box on his desk and his smartphone couldn't leave that spot for a full month. And even afterward, like it was challenging for him, but he found it that like he had to look up directions before he left his apartment. And then he found that he kind of liked that life a bit more. And so even afterward, he was adopting, he would keep his smartphone with him when he left the apartment, but he would like put the phone in like the uh, center crevice of his backpack. So he couldn't just grab it out of his pocket. Like it was especially harder to grab it. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe for some of us, like we don't feel that same urge to touch our devices or to grab it instinctively, but I think enough of us do. I think these devices are built to be addictive enough that just like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you wouldn't work in a package store (laughs) or if you're, uh, 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 a problematic gambler, you wouldn't work in a casino, right? For many of us, we need to make little things and adjustments in our life to make it harder to feed into those addictive things with the devices. That is some good words of wisdom for us to, to close the podcast on. So Stephen, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me, Amber. It was really fun. I look forward to talking with you again next month, hopefully with everybody. Yes. So we uh, will have Stephen back as a guest for an event at, uh, at the church. It'll actually be via Zoom. Uh, but then we will also um, have that posted to our YouTube page if you, if you can't make the live event. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, once again, the name of the book is The Quiet Zone. I highly the, recommend checking it out. It's called The Quiet Zone. Yes, The Quiet Zone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we will make sure to get all the links in the description of the podcast for everybody to uh, go check that out. So. Once again, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I look forward to seeing you all next month and bring your questions about the book. I'd love to talk with you about it. Mm-hmm.